Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the podcast. It was Rock and Roll Politics, the weekly podcast. And first of all, I have to apologise for not making it a weekly podcast. It was quite some time ago when I recorded the last one. I'm really sorry about that. I know uh, we're all told who do podcasts, make it every week, the same day and everything. Um, but I've been really busy. I'm not quite sure why I've been really busy. Partly Brexit. Brexit is sucking up a lot of time and attention uh, for all of us in political journalism for obvious reasons. I'm finishing a book on modern prime ministers from Harold Wilson to Theresa May. The May chapter keeps on becoming problematic and that's taking up a lot of time but one way and, and a bit of fun as well a bit of non-Brexit fun every now and again watching Tottenham Hotspur watching a few plays you know having a bit of a bit of a laugh doing a bit of performing on the stage um, I have to do all these things I'm completely hooked uh, completely hooked on these uh, stage performances in a strange way on New Year's Eve uh, we had a kind of dinner with some friends and we all did our hopes for the new year and I couldn't think of anything beyond the usual cliches about becoming an athlete and losing the weight required to have the body of an athlete and all those cliches but I kind of just spontaneously said after a vat of wine I just want to spend more time on the stage I think for some journalists the stage is a really interesting and important additional outlet for a start there's a real appetite for live performance um, when I do these rock and roll politics shows in London well the last one in December when I sold out by October and I'm doing one in March in London in King's Place and that sold out at the end of December and they've added another one in March March being a month of heightened political interest that's at King's Place it was sold out for March the 13th so they've added one on March the 11th it's just such good fun doing things on stage and live everything else journalists do if you write you get a lot of feedback now on Twitter and the comments underneath a column and similarly with broadcasting you're stuck alone in some studio with a producer who very politely says it's good or you can tell when they don't think it's good but apart from that you know you, you complete isolation on stage you, you you get it immediately the sense of whether things are going well or not and why they go well sometimes and not others it's also interesting anyway sorry I've been doing all of that so I just haven't had time for um the podcast but of course here we are a short period away from this historic vote on Tuesday evening and it's got to start up again this podcast in such a historic context extraordinary moment when it looks as if Theresa May will lose the vote on the deal now everyone has written that in and assumes that will happen and it almost certainly will but even so what a moment a prime minister who has been negotiating the most important proposition to put before the House of Commons since 1945 and loses. Under normal circumstances, that would finish off a prime minister's career. But as I'm going to go on to reflect, this current prime minister still has some agency as to what happens next. Indeed, quite a lot. And that's, in fact, where I'm going to start. It seems to me a lot of the feverish speculation about the precise sequence and what that sequence will be kind of sometimes overlooks the fact about what 
party in all of this, I don't mean political party, but what figure, what institution has agency. And although the House of Commons is becoming increasingly muscular, and rightly so, this is the elected chamber trying to navigate the UK through the toughest set of hurdles since 1945, as well as being of such historic consequence, whatever happens. The House of Commons has some agency. But it seems to me that Theresa May is in the curious figure of remaining key to all of this. I keep on reading how powerless she has become, and on one level that's true. She should have recognised from when she became leader of a minority government after her calamitous election that this transformed the political context in which she governed. And she sort of realised it. She obviously quickly did that deal with the DUP and she dropped half her manifesto, which was written by Nick Timothy, who she got rid of anyway, and kind of carried on as if that manifesto hadn't existed. So in that sense, she changed. But on Brexit, she didn't. She remained obsessed with wooing the ERG, the hardline Brexiteers, and to try and keep her cabinet united. And whatever else you think of Theresa May, she failed spectacularly on both counts. And again, I don't think she's a reflective person and clearly hasn't thought too much about it because, frankly, you wouldn't be able to get up in the morning if you did. But the hardliners in her party will vote against a deal, and she hasn't kept her cabinet together. She's lost two Brexit secretaries. But that was her priority. Whereas, self-evidently, when you've got no majority in the House of Commons and the DUP are wobbly allies at the best of times, and on this were inevitably going to be wobbly, you have to reach out beyond party. Now, I can understand why May didn't, because to do so would have almost certainly triggered the departure of those Brexit secretaries earlier and would have established the Rees Moggs of this world as your internal opponents, whereas her early ambiguity meant that they weren't formalised as internal opponents. But given that's where she's ended up anyway and was always going to end up in that position, because the hardliners live up to that term. They are unyielding and uncompromising. And therefore, she should have realised that any attempt by her to compromise on a hard Brexit to deal with the Irish question, which she hasn't really dealt with, by the way, only temporarily with this backstop, was going to alienate them and her Brexit secretaries, who were on Europe fantasists. But anyway, that was her priority, and that's why she's in this weak position now. A really agile Prime Minister in a stronger position would have, to take one example, listen to Jeremy Corbyn's party conference speech last year, where he said if she were willing to move on a customs union, workers' rights and environmental regulations, he could do a deal with her. In effect, that's what he uh, said. Now, he was being mischievous and disingenuous and troublemaking, but she could have taken that as a basis to woo MPs, and we know she could have done because that's what she's doing now at the last minute, giving a call to Len McCluskey, 
that must have been a great phone call. Actually, I'm sure it was. He's very polite and he would have been very polite and she's very polite. So I'm sure it was a very friendly and fruitless phone call because it hasn't won him round. It's too late, but you can know what the thinking was in number 10 when she picked up the phone as high as that Len, it's Teresa. Len McCluskey has come out against a referendum saying that leavers in the Labour Party would never forgive them if they hold a second referendum. So he is wooable. And I think some Labour MPs have told her that they need the protective shield of trade union leaders backing some form of her deal in order to give them the space to do so. So to have Len McCluskey doing it would have been a fantastic triumph for Theresa May. But it's way, way too late, days before a deal. It looks completely insincere and desperate. But if she had reached out to Jeremy Corbyn's mischievous invitation, I think there might have been space to actually get quite a lot of the House of Commons round a softer Brexit than she was contemplating at that time. But this is the twist with Theresa May. She's now in a very weak position, self-evidently. But she is obstinate. And, you know, she spent her whole time as Home Secretary being unyielding, concluded that that approach was highly successful and almost defined her as a politician, as someone who stood her ground when other cabinet ministers were saying, be softer on immigration or whatever. And I think that's how she sees her raison d'etre as a leader. And it's quite hard to hear her say after the vote is lost, assuming it is lost. I never assume governments are going to be defeated until they are defeated. To hear her say, I now become the agent of the House of Commons. My deal has failed and therefore I will respect whatever the House of Commons votes for and will deliver it. It's wholly out of her character to utter the words and to behave in the way that those words imply as a leader. And yet she is the key figure, not Jeremy Corbyn. What she says after the vote is pivotal. If she says after the vote, we'll come back in three days and in effect have the vote again in some slightly different form, that will be in effect what happens. And so it's hard to imagine Theresa May as Prime Minister agreeing to Norway plus because it will mean her dumping everything she has said about leaving in March because there will require an extension to negotiate that. It means her dumping all the nonsense she's spoken about about some of her red lines and becoming in effect a different person. But what is the alternative to her undergoing a political metamorphosis? No deal would be a catastrophe. And if it were to happen, historians would be fascinated and bewildered in 500 years' time. For no deal to happen with a Prime Minister knowing it's a catastrophe, a Chancellor of the Exchequer knowing it's a catastrophe, the majority of MPs opposed to it with a resolute horror at the prospect, a leader of the opposition opposed. For it then to happen would be just the most colossal cock-up in the whole history of British politics, and the government that lands it would never be forgiven. So that can't happen. 
And I don't think May would be the Prime Minister to do it, although you almost wonder whether she has convinced herself that her mission is to deliver Brexit and the 2016 referendum come what may, but I don't think she's reached that point uh, where she feels that she will be the leader that uh, instigates economic catastrophe on a country purely to deliver the 2016 outcome. So that's not possible. But if May were to go and announce that she couldn't, with her own sense of self, deliver any other deal than her one, and there's a Tory leadership contest, the Tory party in its current state would elect someone to the right of May, who would contemplate no deal, even though he or she couldn't get it through the House of Commons. So if not May, who is the instrument? Now, Almost certainly, I think certainly, Jeremy Corbyn, if she loses the vote, will announce a vote of no confidence in May. This will get all the headlines for 24 hours, and it's a great red herring, because unless the DUP vote with the opposition party, she will win. And that means every confidence vote that she's been tested with, the one in her own party, and this one, she wins. So it's irrelevant but it will command a lot of support. But that means there can't be a general election. Now, I understand why Corbyn is calling for one, and I think it is wholly legitimate. He doesn't frame the argument that well. He should say, look, Brexit can't be taken in isolation. A government that renegotiates Brexit, as he's proposing to do, would also be introducing a whole different range of other policies to boost the economy as he would see it and boost the quality of people's lives and address the issues of those who feel left behind. And it cannot be done in a single-issue referendum because of all the other policy uh, implications in other areas. So it's, that's a perfectly legitimate argument for a leader of the opposition to put at this point. The big call for him comes when he loses the vote of no confidence, and there isn't an election. And that brings in the role of Parliament and the degree to which it can take control. Now, there's a lot of speculation that MPs will be allowed to put forward motions that can, in effect, become legislation. Let's see. That would be a way through this, because it would then mean that MPs take control. We don't know whether that's going to happen, and won't for a few days yet. But what we do know for now is that only the government can, and only the Prime Minister can. So the only questions we need to pose at the moment is, can May change? Is she a leader who can utter the word, say, Parliament has rejected my deal, I therefore propose a referendum on my deal versus it would have to be Remain. She might not be able to utter those words, but Parliament will make sure Remain is on the ballot paper. As I say, I remember Yvette Cooper saying very powerfully to her at the Liaison Committee in December, Prime Minister, I've known you for 20 years. I know you cannot and won't allow no deal to happen. But could she authorise a referendum? Could she instigate Norway plus against everything that she said. So in analysing her, uh, you come closest to what might happen next. 
And as I said, part of that analysis suggests she's wholly incapable of doing those things. She is the most obstinate leader, way more obstinate than Thatcher in many respects. However, she has reached the point in her leadership, and it's a curious phase she's in, where what she says at any given time, A, quite often bears no re relation to the reality of the situation. And also, it contradicts things that she has said earlier. Most famously, and others have said this, she said there wouldn't be an early election, then there was an early election. And I'm sure at the time she said there wasn't going to be, she meant it. But she has said some other odd things. The cabinet is united behind my deal. She said this on the podium of number 10. The next day, her Brexit secretary, Dominic Raab, resigned, and so did several other ministers, and she must have known that was highly likely when she made the statement, and so on. So there is a part of her who utter words at a given moment as if previous words that contradict those she is uttering at that moment had never been expressed. And so maybe she can. If she can't, it's not at all clear what happens. The way through may be for the House of Commons to take control, but it would still have to be a Prime Minister who renegotiates. Uh, you can't have, I don't know, a kind of backbench MP doing it. And so who is that Prime Minister who renegotiates Norway or initiates a referendum? What it seems clear to me is absolutely necessary is at the very least an extension of Article 50. In my view, it would be much better to revoke Article 50 because it's simpler. We know from the European Court that the government can revoke Article 50 tomorrow if it wants. Delaying it, you have to get the agreement of every member of the European Union. You'd have to have a reason for it and presumably a deadline and quite a tight deadline. And the whole frenzy is partly to do with that clock ticking. May instigated Article 50 without having a clue what she was going to do and negotiated with her party for most of that time. And that's why two years was never going to be enough. And anyway, by the way, someone who was involved in framing Article 50 told me they put in the two-year deadline because they knew two years was far too little time for any country to negotiate a departure and assume therefore that no country would be stupid enough to even try and that was a calculation based on the fact on the assumption that a country would behave rationally which this one hasn't or not this country this government hasn't so more time is required I don't even know whether she can be the person who does that but I think she can she has said many times Britain is leaving at the end of March full stop but I think she could utter a statement which ignores the fact that she said that many times. And perhaps she is the one who could navigate a different way through, a referendum or Norway. If not, who? In a way, this does cry out for a general election because it needs a different agency to bring about the change of course that is required. And although it doesn't express it like this, Corbyn is right, it needs a different range of policies from this one that incidentally this government anyway can't really get through this House of Commons. There's nothing else happening at Westminster because Brexit, even more than it has been doing, is sucking up all the energy. 
So I haven't really said what's going to happen because nobody knows. But I do believe that the key agency, even after an historic defeat, will be Theresa May. What Jeremy Corbyn decides after he's lost the vote of confidence, assuming he loses, I mean, anything is possible in the current situation, is absolutely pivotal. And it's going to be very, very tough for him. Some of the onslaught he gets is unfair. For example, Tony Blair, who is framing with characteristic brilliance the argument for staying in and a referendum to get that outcome, I suspect would not be putting the argument as explicitly as that if he was in Corbyn's position as leader of the opposition and leader of the Labour Party. Corbyn has got what all leaders of the Labour Party have had to face, a whole series of expedient calculations to make because of the divisions within the Labour Party. And they can't be just dismissed by people saying, you know, and I'm a Remainer, but, you know, oh, you know, 80% of the party membership wants to stay in. That is the true. But some of their voters in the north of England don't. And it's it's a difficult balancing act. Tony Blair faced it with the single currency when at different points he wanted to go in, Gordon Brown didn't, and vice versa. And, of course, that was the key calculation for the Labour Party in that period, what those two wanted at any given time. Harold Wilson faced it when Britain joined the European Union. It was called the Common Market then. He voted, and the Labour Party's official position was to be against uh, membership. But then he underwent and did that clever renegotiation and won a referendum on that basis in 1975. But he had to allow his cabinet to uh, disagree with each other publicly and so on. It is an issue that has to be managed in the Labour Party. It always has been. It's, it, it's not true. The Conservatives feel more intensely passionate about Europe and their hostility towards it uh, has been deranged for decades. But the issue in the Labour Party has had to be managed, even though it became, in the 80s and 90s, much more united as a pro-European party it was always still underneath quite a few internal differences about it so he's got a job of management to do but there comes a point where the ambiguity has to end and calls have to be made and for Corbyn it will come after he's lost the vote of confidence they will then have to have some pretty clear positions because the general election, which is a means to an end and not a clear end, clear about the means but not the end, is off the table. And that uh, silly fixed-term Parliament Act means it's still more likely than not that the election will be in 2022, which is nightmarish, really, because in many respects this House of Commons has already become dysfunctional in a good way. I mean, people say, oh, God, you know, this this place isn't working and things. It is. It's reflecting the tensions in the country and the divisions in the country. And that's a good thing. And as the Commons becomes assertive over a government that sometimes behaves as if it's got a majority of 180, that's a really good thing. And if the Speaker 
facilitates the Commons to challenge a government that has no overall majority and yet behaves as if it's got a landslide, if the Speaker allows the Commons to challenge a government that behaves like that, that Speaker, John Burko, is not being biased in favour of one policy area as against another, but biased in favour of Parliament. And that's the other interesting twist at the moment. The whole row over Burko is quite interesting. Because normally, for a Speaker to be pro-Parliament wouldn't be controversial. Ministers will get annoyed when they're called in to become answerable to Parliament. But most people would say, oh, that's quite a, that's a good thing. But because with Brexit, Parliament is now at odds with the government, for a Speaker to be pro-Parliament, he then gets all these unfair accusations of being partisan, pro-European, anti-Brexit and all the rest of it. But it's only because this government has tried to get things through against the will of Parliament that a pro-Parliament speaker becomes controversial. And uh, it's quite, it's, in fact, I think it's brave of Burko to stand up for the rights of Parliament. And remember, as he put it when this whole thing erupted in the House of Commons a few days ago, all he can do is facilitate. If the government has a majority, they'll win. If uh, the majority goes the other way, it shows in a way that Parliament needs a vehicle to express it, or else a government will be steamrolling things through against the will of Parliament. And that shouldn't happen any time, but over an issue as historic as this, it definitely shouldn't. So Burko is doing the right thing in letting Parliament have a voice in this epic, epic drama. Uh, just one other thing. Uh, I, I haven't watched uh, BBC One's Question Time for a long time because I know they just whip up the audiences into a sort of gladiatorial frenzy and there are five panellists so no one is allowed to have room to breathe and all the rest of it. I did watch it to see how Fiona Bruce would do, the new Question Time presenter. And as many people have tweeted, she did really well. It's a tough, tough gig and she was so calm and uh, had a good presence as chair. But the other thing that worked on the programme, which I saw, the first one that she did, was that they only had two questions. One, I think, was on the NHS. I can't... Uh, something to do... Or, no, maybe... No, it was about the knife crimes and so on. But, and obviously mainly about Brexit. So even though the programme makes a fatal mistake of having five panellists, too many in a program where the audience gets quite a big input as well be too many if the audience didn't it's way too many when you have the audience as well but if you only have two questions at least those topics are explored and allowed to breathe a bit and she was able to get a dynamic going between audience and panel and so forth but this fear of allowing things to breathe of say having a panel of four which is the absolute maximum in that format that would enable nuance to emerge, interesting levels of agreement. They don't like that. They like just clashes. Would be so much better. But anyway, it was a good start. And part of the reason, apart from her natural... She's just naturally at ease on telly. And she's quite witty, and that was good. But it was giving those two topics room to breathe. But if only some of these editors would allow the room to breathe they would be doing everybody the viewers included a 
big service. You know, the viewers, it's really patronising to assume all they want is a shouting match and a duplication of the sort of noise that's happening in politics. They want something more when you've got the BBC involved than just... That's the other thing. The BBC, you know, some editors proudly proclaim, and that's true, how hard they work at balancing panels and all the rest of it. And it's really hard at the moment to do all the balancing, you know, women, men... Brexit, anti-Brexit, Corbynista, Tories of different hues, really difficult. But if balance, and they really try hard to get it right, it takes ages, uh, but if balance is an end in itself, all you're doing is duplicating the political noise elsewhere. And you switch on or listen at the moment to get some guide through the noise. And um, balance cannot just be the sole aim and to claim triumph when panels or whatever are balanced cannot be the great proclamation because while they're doing that out of a sense of obligation I think this um, they also have an obligation to tackle the bias against understanding at a point of such bewildering complexity but I know God, balancing these panels is really really tough so I might watch another one of those question times on the basis of last week who knows but anyway epic politics to come part of my resolution which I will keep to is to do some more of these more regularly thanks for waiting oh yeah just a reminder they've added because of my new addiction to the stage they've added no no it's not that actually it's because the one in March has been sold out at King's Place in London so there's another one on March the 11th so do book uh, if you haven't booked for the 13th if you can get to London doing some others uh, elsewhere as well and um, look forward to doing another one of these fairly soon thanks so much for listening downloading subscribing all the things that you do with podcasts and here's to some more epic politics <laughs>